0: This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. Good morning morning to all of you. Good morning those of you who may be watching online. You may have a seat. I'm going to read from the very last chapter of Acts chapter 28 as we conclude this study in the book of Acts. And if you care to use one of the Pew Bibles, you'll find it on page 937. We're in the last part of this chapter and the book, Acts 28, verses 17 through 31. You know, I checked... uh, Last night, what was the first sermon in the book of Acts that we did in this series? And it was uh, June, June 21st, I think that was 2020. So, almost been a couple years. Of course, not every Sunday was in the book of Acts. But nevertheless, it's been a couple years journey. Thank you for your prayers and I hope that the Lord ministered to you. I know you certainly did to me. And two weeks ago or three weeks ago, actually... Um, The last time we were in the book of Acts together, we saw Paul, and I want to say that he was a man in his late 50s when all this happened. We saw Paul um, uh, having gone through three trials and uh, imprisonment, and he went through that harrowing, exhausting storm. He went through the shipwreck. He washed up on a beach, and it wasn't long after that he was bitten by a viper. (laughs) And then he spent uh, the winter there on the island of Malta, After wintering in a strange place, he traveled by uh, by sea again up to the Bay of Naples. And having arrived at the Bay of Naples, Paul then walked 140 miles to reach Rome. (laughs) That's where we were last with Paul. And then when you look at verse 17, it says, After three days, that's it, he only took three days of rest. (laughs) After three days, and I'm reading now, he called together the local leaders of the Jews... And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. That's much like our Lord Jesus. And when they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I've asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And Paul's referred to the hope of Israel before. The hope of Israel is the resurrection. Then he says, and they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect we know that everywhere it is spoken against. Now when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning to evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. And here it is. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet. He quotes from Isaiah. Go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This is the word of God. I've taken that last little few words there as the title for today's message. With all boldness and And without hindrance. I know there are times, beloved, when, especially today, it can feel like the entire world is all organized together and uniting in its hostility against the Word of God, against the Gospel, against the truth, against Jesus, and by extension, against His church, you know, His people. Uh, But be assured, this is nothing new. (laughs) It's nothing new at all. The truth, that is, that revelation from God, has always been opposed and resisted by natural man to begin with, right? Since the very beginning. Has God really said? Was the seed of doubt planted in our first parents in the Garden of Eden? In fact, the truth be told, you yourselves were opposed to the truth. And I was opposed to to the truth, to the message of the gospel at some point in time. That's what you were, right? Scripture says about all humanity and in our natural state that is apart from the grace of God, it says that we all suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We resist it. And Paul says in Romans 8 that the natural mind or the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God and cannot keep God's law. It's unable to do so. So the truth be told, the world may be against the truth, it always has been, but so were you. (laughs) And so was I. And again, truth be told, it may be that some of you still are here today or listening, wherever you may be. But there's more to say about that, and that is that the truth, again, when I say the truth, I mean that revelation from God that has been inscripturated, the Word of God that comes from God, when it is empowered by the Holy Spirit, when it is accompanied by the Holy Spirit's ministry, that word of God can overcome and break through this hostility, break through this blindness, break through this opposition, when and where ever God wants it to. That's the truth. This is the central thread throughout the book of Acts. And that's why we entitled this series, The Spreading Word. Uh, when you read the ending of Acts, I know if you're like me and you're following the story, you read the end, you feel like, I don't know, I don't feel satisfied. <laughs> what happened next to Paul? What was going on? What about going to Nero? I mean, it's one thing to hear about Agrippa. I want to hear about Nero, you know. What happened? But you know what? what Luke's telling us in this? This is not a biography of Paul. He's not not a hero here. This is not a biography of Peter, you see. This is an accurate narrative of accounting for the expansion of the gospel. It's explaining how the gospel, how the message of a crucified Jewish man went from Jerusalem, which was from their perspective, different than how we might see it, went from Jerusalem, which was a podunk town on the outskirts of the Roman Empire. How the message of a Jewish Messiah went from there and got all the way to the city of Caesar and was planted there. And so he is telling us that. And so Luke decides to leave off at that point. This is an account of the spreading word. And as we made our way through the book of Acts, we stopped at various transition or summary statements and I, I pointed him out. In Acts chapter 6 verse 7 was the first one. Acts 6 verse 7 Luke says and the word of God continued to increase. You see he's saying this is what I'm talking about. This is what these stories are all about. The word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of priests became obedient to the faith. And then Luke tells us of other episodes, different things that happened, and how the gospel was moving. And then he comes to the next summary statement in Acts chapter 12 and verse 24. <clears throat> and there Luke says, But the word of God increased and multiplied, even in the face of hostility. Then he tells us of more episodes and how the word began to reach the end Gentiles. And he comes to chapter 19 and verse 20, and there he says, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. You see, this is what he's writing about. The book of Acts is an explanation, an historical accounting, not of the life of Paul or Peter per se, but of how it is that this message of, of a crucified Jewish Messiah uh, managed to reach the capital city. And so when he comes to chapter 28, Luke is bringing us to his crescendo when we arrive in verse 24, and he says in verse 14, and so we came to Rome. (laughs) You read it like that, you see. And so we arrived at the city of Caesar, (laughs) at the capital city. And then Luke ends, and there in that city, The Apostle Paul preached about the kingdom of God and Jesus Christ as Lord with all boldness and without hindrance for two years, you see. There's the climax of what he's been telling us about the expansion of the gospel. Uh, Was he hindered there, you say. Wasn't he limited? He was, in a, he was in a house arrest. Yeah, Paul was confined. He was still having to give account and apparently ch- uh, chained to these Roman soldiers on turns. But you remember that in the ancient world, it said that all the roads lead to Rome, and therefore the reverse was true, that the roads from Rome lead to all places, you see. And once the gospel flag was firmly rooted in Rome, Eventually, the Lord used that to spread the gospel to all the reaches of the Roman Empire. And so Paul was not the first one to preach the gospel in Rome. Remember, uh, he wrote to a church that was there that he had never visited. But sometime before Paul had reached there, the Jews had been evicted from Rome by Claudius. And by the time Paul reached Rome, uh, the church was smaller, but there were believers there uh, beginning to regather and what Paul did is that he firmly established them in the gospel remember when he wrote Romans 1 he says I long to, to give you a gift to preach the gospel to you the church and so you will understand more fully and so Paul is the one who established them and you say it all happened while he was in prison yeah <laughs> it, it's amazing it was a fruitful ministry while he was there in captivity those two years. While Paul was in captivity those two years, he wrote what we call the prison epistles. He wrote the book of Philippians, he wrote to Colossians, he wrote Ephesians, and then he wrote that personal letter to Philemon about his runaway slave named Onesimus who managed to find his way to Rome and there he visited Paul somebody must have told him about Paul and Paul shared the gospel with him and he was converted under Paul's ministry and now Paul was sending him home all that happened in prison you think about how many millions of people have been touched and helped and affected by those four letters they were written in verse 31 or 30 <laughs> in those two years while Paul found himself in prison. On top of that, when he writes to the Philippian church, what does he say? He says the whole Praetorian guard has heard the gospel. They've heard that I am imprisoned here, not because I'm some criminal, but because of Christ. There were thousands of Roman soldiers in the Praetorian guard. That's not to say that Paul evangelized each one of them, but that the word had already spread in, in Nero's, Elite guards, you see. All that happened by the hand of God. Amazing. Now, what happened to Paul? I know you're still curious. We don't have much more in Scripture, per se, but we can put some things together from Scripture and the early church fathers. What it appears to happen is that Paul was released from this imprisonment. And we have an inclination of that in different ways. One of them is just by the positive outlook he had when he wrote the letter to the Philippians. In Philippians, uh, in, in chapter 1 and verse 19, Paul says to them, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So as far as we understand he did turn out for his deliverance. We don't have a record of what it was like to stand before Nero and all that but it appears that no one even came to make a case against Paul while he was there in Rome and it appears that he spent the next two years uh, he went back to Ephesus and revisited parts of Asia and there uh, during that time he wrote 1 Timothy and Titus and this makes the the best sense of why Paul refers to cities in those two letters that, he does, that Luke does not mention in Acts because it was not part of the first, second, or third missionary journey. These were new cities that he visited during those two years. In fact, some traditions say that he even finally made it to Spain. where We're not sure. We don't know. But then um, it is thought that he was re-arrested. And some early church fathers, again, just Clement, uh, speak of this. He was rearrested, and uh, there, uh, this time, it came to a conclusion where he was martyred. Uh, and we can sense the difference in 2 Timothy, which he wrote during that second imprisonment. It's Very different than Philippians. In 2 Timothy, as Paul nears the end of that letter, his last letter, he says in verse 6 of chapter 4, I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. Very different than Philippians chapter 1. And so tradition teaches us uh, that Paul was martyred shortly after he wrote 2 Timothy. Being a Roman citizen he could not be crucified but Paul was beheaded under the uh, direction of the emperor Nero. And so Now you know the rest of the story. (laughs) But we conclude now, chapter 28. This is the ending of this last chapter of the book of Acts, but not the last chapter of Paul's life, and it wasn't the last chapter of the church either and its mission. The book closes with those two final episodes, which I read, which was Paul's uh, last meeting with Jewish leaders, this time in Rome, and his warning to them. And then those closing statements, summary statements by Luke regarding Paul's two years uh, of ministry there. And this, those two scenes, those two closing scenes, in the context of the chapter and in the context of the entire book, they carry the melody of the entire book. That is, how was the gospel spreading? They carry that melody of the entire book to a final crescendo with two central themes that have been throughout the whole book uh, that explain how is it that the gospel spread how is it that it overcame all those obstacles through such frail messengers and there were two answers to that and the first one is because of the unfailing faithfulness of God to his word and because of the unfailing effectiveness of the Spirit-empowered word. And both of those stand out here at the end of the book of Acts. Why did the gospel overcome? How did it reach Rome with such frail and fragile people? Messengers like Peter and Paul. and Well, because, of, first of all, the unfailing faithfulness of God to his word. I want to remind you that everything that was, hap- that was fulfilled in the life of Jesus or happened in the life of Jesus and in the early church was the fulfillment of God's Word, what God had promised. You know, Acts is Luke's volume 2, remember? And what was volume 1? The Gospel of Luke. And here's how the Gospel of Luke, volume 1, opened up. I read from 1. Chapter 1, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past. Luke was a very careful investigative historian to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. He had an original reader in mind, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. That's how the gospel began. And then he gives an account of the life of uh, the birth, life, suffering, death, resurrection of Jesus. And when he comes to the end of his gospel in Luke 24, uh, you remember he closes what that glorious scene with Jesus after the resurrection he's in the upper room with the disciples and it says there in Luke 24:44, he said to them these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you meaning before I was crucified that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled you see that's the entire Old Testament Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. He gave them an instantaneous divine understanding of it all. That must have been a mind-blowing moment, huh? And he said to them, thus it is written, you see. It was always written in Scripture. Everything you've seen happening... Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. He says all that was always written. And you, he says next, are witnesses of these things. It's been fulfilled in my life, my suffering, my crucifixion, and my resurrection. But how could they become witnesses? Verse 49, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And then later, Luke writes volume 2. That was the book of Acts. How did it begin? It starts like this. In the first book, the gospel of Luke, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Implication, I'm writing now about what Jesus continued to do and teach. From where? From heaven. Seated at the right hand of all authority and power. And then he says that Jesus, before he ascended to the right hand of glory and power, appeared to the disciples, and he said to them in verse 8, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So that had not yet taken place now. And you will be my witnesses. In other words, the result of him coming is that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of of the Earth, and so the core truth of the gospel, the details of the Gospel, have always been revealed and written by God the Father and God, the Spirit in Holy Scripture, and it was all fulfilled uh, without consummation uh, in the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, His life, death, and resurrection, and then the promise of the Holy Spirit, which at that point had yet not been fulfilled, was later fulfilled uh, 50 days after the resurrection on that first day of Pentecost following the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. What is the point here, everybody? Why does the gospel, why does the gospel uh, continue? Why is it unstoppable? Because God is faithful. That's why. God is faithful to his word. And this is what he has revealed in his word. He said to them, you will be my witnesses. And what did we learn in the book of Acts? They were. <laughs> he said, you'll be empowered to be my witnesses. And what do we learn in the book of Acts? They were. <laughs> you see, that's how someone like Peter, who denied he even knew Jesus three times one night, and the, how the rest of them who fled when Jesus was crucified, That's how some 50 days later, they could stand up before authorities and boldly preach the gospel. Why? Because they were clothed with power from on high. And all of that, all of that is a testimony to what? To the faithfulness of God to His word. Because that is exactly what God said would happen. That's what was written that would take place Every bit of it, the sufferings of Christ and His resurrection and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, as the prophet Joel said on the day of Pentecost. All of that was the Word of God promised in the ancient scriptures. This is the very nature of our God. He is faithful to His Word. What God has revealed will happen and says will happen. Guess what? (laughs) It will happen. In Isaiah 55, verse 10 as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that it goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed, listen to this, in the thing for which I sent it. <laughs> Whatever I sent my word to accomplish, whatever it reveals I will accomplish, it will accomplish, you see. In chapter 46 of Isaiah, he says that he is the God who declares the end, what's going to happen, from the beginning. And what he declares is going to happen is what happens. And Jesus, being the Son of God, God in flesh, is the same. When he spoke those promises, that they would be empowered, they were empowered. And later when he he's dramatically saved that man Saul, you remember that? And he became to us the apostle Paul. What did he tell Paul? He told him that he would suffer for his name. And you know what? He did. <laughs> he told him that he would testify for him before kings. And you know what? He did. He stood before, he stood before Festus and Felix and Agrippa. And he told them when he came to him in Caesarea in that prison on that dark, cold night, when it all seemed just hopeless. And it says that he stood by him. He said, you must testify for me, about me in Rome. And you know what? <laughs> Here we are in chapter 28 of the, of the book of Acts. Guess what? He did. <laughs> he testified in Rome for two years. Without hindrance, which means that no one stopped him. That means no authorities put a halt to what Paul was saying or doing. No one caused him to stop. They limited him, yes, but no one stopped him from preaching the truth for those two years straight. You think about that, and that is glorious. The triune God is faithful to his word, faithful to bring about exactly what he's declared he will do. Remember when Paul was in the shipwreck and towards the end there when people were trying to escape sailors and he says, look, you got to hang in there. They got to stay on board. And remember what he said to them? He says, I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I was told. And you know what? (laughs) It was exactly as he was told. And they were all saved, not one of them. Yes, and when God is faithful to his word, By implication, he's faithful to his servant of the word. For God to fulfill what he said he would about his word or regarding the gospel, he needed to be faithful to Paul. And so... He delivered Paul again and again and again. He protected Paul. He preserved Paul. He brought him through the storm. He brought him through the shipwreck. He brought him through the viper's bite. He brought him through the winter in Malta. And he brought him there into Rome, you see. When God is faithful to his word and what it's going to accomplish, he needs to be faithful to those whom he's going to use to accomplish his will. I think is a glorious thing what Jesus said when he spoke to his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, don't be anxious about these things. Your heavenly Father knows you need these things. And God knew exactly what Paul needed. He knew the details of Paul's pains and feelings. And when he arrived at at the Bay of Naples, he knew that Paul needed encouragement, and he sends these traveling groups to meet him—Christians who maybe had read his letter to Rome—and he never knew them. And there they come, and they encouraged them. He allowed Paul to be to be to to take time apart and spend with these new friends that were given to him through the Roman centurion. And then he sent other Christians who made him met him later on the Appian Way, who came. Out of Rome. And then God knew that Paul needed a place of rest. He gave him that highly unusual situation. As far as we understand. In, under, under Roman imperialism. That he was allowed to have a house to live in. With tremendous freedoms. The house was large enough for a large group of Jews to come and meet him there. And to provide for himself. And that he was there for two years without hindrance. All of that is you know what? It is the fingerprints of a heavenly father who is faithful to his word and faithful to his servants, the servants of the word, taking care of Paul. So why did the gospel reach Rome and how did it overcome such hostility with such frail, fragile messengers? Because God is faithful to his word. Why will you? Persevere in the faith. Why will you endure tribulation in the times in which we live? Why will you stay true to Christ in your confession of faith and come through these trials of purification and be made stronger? Why? Because of the unfailing uh, faithfulness of God to His Word. I'm just going to close with just reading some verses to you regarding his, uh, close this first point. Don't get excited, okay? Uh, (laughs) All right. Uh, Some verses about the faithfulness of God, okay? Let's hear them. Listen to this, brother and sister. Isaiah 25, 1. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful, and sure. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. You know it well. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. You know the next statement. Great is your faithfulness. Exodus 34, 6. The revelation of God to Moses. The Lord, that's Yahweh, passed before him and proclaimed... This is the voice of God, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and, you guess it, faithfulness. Faithfulness. 2 Thessalonians, New Testament, chapter 3, verse 3. The Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against The evil one. You need to hear that today, beloved. He will guard you against the evil one. He won't keep you from all pain and suffering from from the rejection of Christ in this world, but he will guard you in the sense that he will keep you in the faith, true to God. Then he goes on. How about Hebrews 10.23? There's many in Hebrews, but here's this one. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And then 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a thought. You will stand blameless before God. How will it happen? He who calls you is faithful, faithful. He will surely do it, not you. Praise God. How, why does the word expand? Why can't you be confident that even in the turmoil of our times where there's such hostility towards truth, even the concept of truth, that the gospel will reach people and things will, people will come to see and hear and, because of the unfailing faithfulness of God to his word. But there's more, and that is because of the unfailing, or unfailing effectiveness, yes, of the spirit-empowered word. Emphasis on spirit-empowered. The uh, the, the word has its effectivity, absolutely, but we're speaking here about the book of Acts, and its emphasis is on the unfailing effectiveness of the spirit-empowered word. The promise of God the Father such as in the prophecies of Joel and others, and expanded upon by God the Son, who promised that the Holy Spirit was coming. That, uh, and what promise of what I'm talking about? The coming and permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit in believers. Uh, that promise had many purposes. Many, many, many ends. Think about some of them. Why would God send His Spirit to dwell upon the new people of God? Well because the Holy Spirit illumines God's word to us. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin and the Holy Spirit leads us to repentance and comforts us with the gospel. The Holy Spirit turns us into temples of the living God and the Holy Spirit enables us to walk in holiness progressively. That's The fruit of the Spirit, right? Uh, Love, joy, peace, self-control. That's walking in holiness. And the Holy Spirit assures us. He assures us that we are the children of God. Why? Because He is the Spirit of adoption by which we're able to cry, Abba, Father, you see. Now the Holy Spirit does all that and more. I'm just, I'm hitting some peaks. But the emphasis in The the book of Acts, central to the book of Acts, is that the Holy Spirit came to empower believers to speak the word of God with boldness, which then he causes to be fruitful or effective. In other words, we might say he came to embolden the speaker and empower the message, the word, uh, to bring about saving faith. You see, that's how they became effectual witnesses. That's how these uneducated fishermen, the vast majority of them, right? And, and, and those who were filled with the fear of man on the night of Jesus' crucifixion became effectual witnesses because they were empowered to speak the word with boldness. The Holy Spirit is a missionary spirit who empowers the people of God for the mission, you see. And that's the emphasis in the book of Acts. Uh, in Acts, the promise of the indwelling Holy Spirit to empower us to preach the gospel. That promise, you know, was fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. It's recorded there, fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. Uh, Pentecost um, was, first of all, it was a, uh, a Jewish festival known as the, festival of Fe- the Feast of Weeks. It was seven weeks plus one day, 49 plus one, 50. And so it took place 50 days after the Passover. The church of the new covenant, the, the church of Jesus, historically recognizes Pentecost as the 50 days after the resurrection, not 50 days after the Passover. Do you know what today is? It's Pentecost Sunday. Did you know that? <laughs> Do you think that was an accident? I don't believe in them. I did not fake being sick on May 22nd so I could have some dramatic effect. <laughs> I, I wasn't planning for that. I, I, I'm, I'm never clued in to what God's doing. <laughs> but we come and discover today what a marvelous providence. Another... Fingerprint of God. That he said, sorry, I'm putting you down for a while. You're going to preach the last verse on Pentecost on the day of Pentecost. So that he would give us a a what? An exclamation point. Because Pentecost, beloved, was a major turning point in the history of redemption. On Pentecost, the ascended Jesus, the the ascended Lord Christ Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit Spirit to form the new people of God, the new covenant people, the people of the Spirit, and empower them for that worldwide mission. And it was such a monumental event that just as the prophet Joel said, it, it was emphasized with those miraculous signs, you remember, without going over everything in Acts 2, remember that the Spirit descended upon the 120 in the upper room uh, with, as if flames of tongues landing on each one of them. And then there was the sound of the mighty rushing wind, the Ruach, Old Testament, the breath, the wind, the Spirit. And then the result was that they began to speak in tongues, that is, in those foreign languages, foreign languages, foreign to them, but understood by all these Jews that came from all the different nations surrounding them from the Mediterranean. And so the result was that they all heard about the mighty acts of God. That was a massive turning point in salvation history. And as a result of what happened in those days, what happened, 3,000 people were immediately added to the church. And so today uh, is Pentecost Sunday, some churches in their own traditions, Christian traditions, uh, use images on this day of the doves or the flames or the wind to recognize Pentecost Sunday. But we do, that's not part of what we do in, in, how, in the use of images. But I tell you again, it's no accident that the Lord wanted us to reflect on this and impress upon your heart that he sent the Spirit for something. And when he came, it was to work through you and work through me, to empower you, be encouraged. The gospel can be effective in your ministry, not because how clever you might present it, (laughs) not because of how skillfully you plan the encounter. It will be effective because of the Spirit's empowerment. And not only the Spirit's empowerment in giving you boldness, but also in empowering the Word. Those are two important things we have to, we have to think about. You see, both of them. The empowerment of the, of the Word, so it's effective, and the empowerment of the speaker, so he or she becomes more bold. So, uh, Spirit-empowered Word. Romans 1.16, what's Paul say? He says, I'm not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God Unto salvation for all who believe you see, but how is it that anyone believes because of the spirit? The word is the power unto salvation, but it has to be met with faith. How does anyone believe it's the gift of grace through the Holy Spirit? Or perhaps first Corinthians think of that first Corinthians 118 the word of the cross That message about Jesus being crucified and raised from the dead, the word of the cross, is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us, those of us who are being saved, It is the power of God. But how is it that we're being saved? Because by grace through faith you've been saved, you see. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit. And so it is this combination of word and spirit that we need to keep together. It's essential. In other words, let me put it this way. The Spirit of God is God. And God the Spirit has chosen the word, the message to be His instrument to bring about conversion. To bring about the awakening and the, the, uh, the, the placing of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If we separate those two, then we would, there's no need to present the gospel. Why present the gospel? The spirit will just do what he wants in anyone whenever he wants without the gospel. But that's not what scripture teaches. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ, right? Or maybe even that word, from Christ, think about this combination of word and spirit. When Paul wrote to the believers at Thessalonica, in First Thessalonians chapter two, in verse thirteen, he says this. First Thess. Two thirteen, he says, "We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, there's the gospel and the messengers, you accepted it not as the word of men." but as what it really is, the Word of God, which is at work, at work right now in you believers. But how is it that that Word, which comes from God, uh, was able to be received in that way by them as the Word of God, and therefore it's doing a work? Well, in chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, Paul wrote the following. He says in verse 4 We know, brothers beloved by God, that He has chosen you. I know God chose you. How? Because our gospel came to you not only in word, it has to come in word. Gospel's a message, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, you see. In power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Paul, I think, is not talking about his own experience as the communicator, but what he saw in them. He saw it was clear. He may have been empowered by the Spirit, yeah, but he saw the Spirit's power enabling them to receive the Word as what it is a Word from God, you see. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit. He empowers the Word, but He also emboldens the speaker. He emboldens the speaker the communicator of God's word. You know, following the day of Pentecost, I'm talking about Acts chapter 2, day of Pentecost, following the day of Pentecost, uh, some of those believers who had already been filled with the Spirit, you know, historically for that first time, the Spirit came and indwelt them and is still with them, but those same people were later filled again, and it produced an empowered boldness to communicate truth. And I don't know if you remember this, but I pointed this out way back in in chapter 2, that Luke, of all the New Testament writers, is careful in how he uses uh, a different verb. Uh, There are two verbs translated fill or to fill in the New Testament. Plerao was one of them. And that verb is is, is normally used of, 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 of filling that results in moral change, moral behavior. Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. And as you're filled with the spirit, which is a command to you, you begin to walk in newness of life and you sing with uh, with joy in your hearts, make melody to one another and so forth. But Luke, uh, when he when he's talking about this in the in the gospel of Luke, and in the book of Acts, he uses a different verb, and that verb is "pimplemi," me, and he uses it in a passive form, in other words, it's not them filling themselves, it's that they are, they're suddenly filled, you know, they didn't control it, they didn't choose it, um, it just happened to them, and he uses a tense that is not continuous, but it, it just, uh, it just happens, it just takes place and and they're empowered by the holy spirit to speak with boldness and i'll give you two examples in the book of acts you know that they were all filled with the spirit in chapter two right but then when you come to chapter four those same individuals here we have peter in chapter four verse eight it says then peter remember he's standing before the council he needs to testify Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. There it is. Pimpley mead, Suddenly, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. And you could read the rest if you want. He preaches there. He's powerful in his communication about the gospel. You go to verse 31. Same chapter. Now it's the whole group. They were in the upper room. And it says, when they had prayed... The place in which they were gathered together was shaken. What a moment, huh? You know, God speak, and he speaks. The room shakes. (laughs) And they were all filled, all of them, with the Holy Spirit. Pimple me. Suddenly, they were all filled. What's the result? They continued to speak the word of God. There it is, with boldness, you see. So the spirit-empowered word, the spirit empowers the word and causes it to be divinely effective, but he also can empower the communicator so that he or she in any given situation, that room filled was filled with men and women, by the way, all of them, in that upper room suddenly can have a greater boldness in which they are speaking the gospel more openly. Uh, the Puritan John Owen referred to this as the gift of holy boldness. <laughs> Uh, holy boldness. I like that. And some of the other Puritans would speak of it as holy unction, the capacity to suddenly be empowered uh, by God. I hope you've experienced that somewhere in your life. It doesn't need to be standing in some pulpit like me. You know what I mean? Where just suddenly you think, I'm just going to say it like it is. And you say, God help me, and you put it in gear, and you go. And and halfway through, you're going, oh my goodness, I'm just going. (laughs) I'm just saying it, you know, and it's That may be, right there you see, beloved, holy boldness. Um, That is the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And so it's the same union of word and spirit that carried the, the Apostle Paul and made his ministry effectual all the way through his journey when he stood before Festus and Felix and Agrippa and stood in the marketplace. And what do we read in the very last verse of the book of Acts? that Paul, in that house that he rented for two years, was proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness. There he is. With all boldness and without hindrance. That is the result of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. How does it happen? Word and spirit. Word and spirit. How does it become effectual? The gospel is a word, remember, that presents us Christ. The gospel is a message that offers us Christ. The spirit, the spirit is the one who lets us see and perceive Jesus for who he really is. He is my Savior. He is the Son of God. He really died for my sin, you say. Jesus said in the Gospel of John in chapter 16 that he would send the Spirit and he said, He will glorify me. He will take what is mine and what is mine was given by the Father and he will glorify me. In other words, the the focus of the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to enable us to perceive who Jesus is that we might come to faith, and He opens our eyes to it. I like the way J.M. Packer used to describe it in his book, Keeping Step with the Spirit. You may have heard of this already. He refers to it as a floodlight ministry. In other words, the Spirit's goal is to put a floodlight on Christ, not upon Himself, you know? If you, if you see a beautiful building, like maybe a cathedral, at night they light them up with some floodlights. You don't walk up to the floodlight and say, that's a really nice floodlight. Wow, I wonder if they got that at Home Depot, you know, where'd you get that? You're not attracted to the floodlight. Most of the time, you don't see it. It's behind some tree or something. What is the floodlight there to do? It's there to show you the glory, you see, of the architecture. And so Packer said, "That's that's the primary ministry of the spirit, especially as we think of the book of Acts, right, is not to magnify himself. See, if, if, if you're somewhere where it's, all the talk is about the Spirit, ask yourself, is, it, is anyone talking about Christ? Because that's what the Spirit is here to talk about, you see. Not about Himself, but about Christ, that there might be life in His name. There's only life in His name. And so that's the ministry of the Spirit. Or Packer illustrated, he said, Spirit, the Spirit's like the contact lens that helps us see Jesus clearly. The lens is not there to see the lens, <laughs> The lens is there to help us see and recognize Christ. And so word and spirit, through the word, we see Jesus. We hear about him. And in the grace of God the Spirit, he speaks into our hearts. And he says, do you hear Jesus saying, come to me and I'll give you rest? And he whispers, as Packer says, to you and says, he's talking to you. So go. He's talking to you. You go to him. That's the ministry of the Spirit. Beloved, if you and I remain committed to the church's mandate, correctly, I mean, which, what is our mandate? Make disciples, yes. But we make disciples how? By preaching Christ and him crucified. Uh, by exalting the person and work of Christ, by making him the focus in the gospel message. When we do that, you know what? We have the same goal that the Spirit has. And so we can expect the Spirit's blessing upon the ministry of the gospel because he is moving in this world to do the very same thing. You can expect that, moms and dads. You can expect that if you keep setting Jesus before your children, who he is, what he's done, not just mere ethics, but you keep presenting Christ, who he is, his glory, his works. And you can expect that the Holy Spirit has the same objective in mind. Likewise, for you, all of you, in any context, be it in Sunday school here, be it in uh, Bible study, be it in a coffee shop where you have set your goals to open your mouth and exalt Christ in the message, in the gospel. Know that you have the Spirit desiring the same thing, and you can expect some fruit. Now I say some, why? Because not all will believe. And the gospel uh, and the um, book of Acts ends with that last solemn warning to the nation of Israel. Everywhere Paul has gone, what has he done? He's preached to the Jew first and been rejected by the majority, then to the Greeks. To the Jew first and to the Greeks. To the Jew first, to the Greeks. He comes to Rome, the capital city, and he sends first of all for the leaders of the synagogues. From what we know is about 11 synagogues had regrouped at this time. And he speaks to them, the majority did not believe. And so he quotes Isaiah. He says, The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers, through Isaiah the prophet. Notice two details. He believes that Isaiah was inspired by the Spirit. Secondly, at first he spoke to them as brothers, and now he says, Your fathers. <laughs> Which ones? These fathers. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers, through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand, you will indeed see but never perceive, for this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God, this message about salvation through Jesus as the Savior has been sent, has always been sent, from the beginning to the Gentiles, and they will listen. And history has borne it out. The centuries have borne it out. Only a a remnant of Jews have believed, but there have been countless millions of Gentiles who have come into the kingdom of God. And that includes most of you, huh? Amen. By the mercy and the grace of God, not all will believe. And what's he talking about here? I won't. I won't take long here. I do want to say this though, that uh, basically this is like the account of Pharaoh, who continually hardened his heart, and then, and then God hardened his heart. There comes a time, beloved when the people who have heard the gospel over and over, people who handle the word, these were Jewish leaders who were responsible for the scriptures of the Old Testament. And there comes a time when you, when, when you have heard it and heard it, but you're not heeding it, that when you hear the truth, instead of healing you, it aggravates you. And that's what was happening with them. When he says the word dull, that's an interesting word. Dull. Dull. It means to make firm or make impervious. Sometimes we might use it in English to speak of being callous. You think about a a real callous, a physical callous. Some people who work with their hands a lot get calluses and it becomes firm and therefore you could prick it and they won't feel a thing. That's not a big deal on your thumb. It's a huge deal in your heart. It's a huge deal when you're speaking about your soul, your spirit. And so this is a warning to those who, like Israel, Israel's teachers, have been privileged with the Bible over and over and over. You're growing up hearing it. You read it. It's all around you. But you're dull and becoming duller because, unlike the Thessalonians, you don't respect it or receive it as what it is. It's not the word of men It is the word of God. I hope that's none of you. You feel like your heart's getting dull. Cry out to God. Soften my heart. Help me be receptive. So beloved, this was the last chapter in the book of Acts. Not the last chapter in the life of Paul. And not the last chapter for the gospel. Because God continues to be faithful to his word, and when his word comes in the power of the spirit, he will keep bearing fruit. Have hope in this wild and crazy time in which we live. He is still Lord. He's still building his church. Let's pray.